Well, it's great to see everyone here this morning. If you're a guest or a visitor, we're especially glad you're here with us. And uh, just uh, hearing the information Jay presented here this morning, uh, Cheryl and I were here on the front row at the 830 service, and uh, we just can't believe in 26 years what God's done here at this church. God's done exceeding abundantly beyond anything we could have asked or thought years ago. And then to see these plans up here today, it kind of blows our minds, really. And to think that maybe we could be in that in, uh, you know, in, in Easter of 2019 is, is really staggering. And, and it's been due to the grace of God and to the generosity of the people here at this church. And uh, we're just so grateful to be here and uh, to be with you all and to, to, to fellowship here with you every week. We appreciate that opportunity so much. Uh, we're in a study of Philippians uh, now at our church. And uh, if you'll turn there with me to Philippians, we've titled this study, uh, To Live as Christ. So if you'll take your Bible and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, that's where we're going to be this morning. Before we open God's Word, I just want to make a brief statement about our physical security here at Faith Bible Church. Um, As you can imagine, in light of what happened this last week in Texas, we've gotten several calls, and I've gotten a few questions just personally from, from our church members about our church's security And I want to assure all of us here that our pastors and elders are committed to do all that we can reasonably do uh, to ensure the safety of our members during our times of public worship here at church. About a year ago, the the elders approached uh, several of our members who have extensive law enforcement background and asked them to kind of assess our church's security and to offer some recommendations. Uh, They came back with those recommendations, and based on those recommendations, we've installed a lot of security cameras. Uh, We've uh, installed an electronic entry system. And also, um, those of you who've been here a while know that we have uh, two police officers here every Sunday morning and two on Wednesday nights, and uh, their police cruisers are kind of parked prominently outside. And uh, the police presence that we have here wasn't uh, due to any, uh, in response to any specific threat that we knew about, was just based on advice from our security team. And uh, we may be adding, uh, we're, we're thinking about maybe adding one more police officer on Sunday morning, so we'll have each of our three main entrances covered. Um, what, what we'll continue to do as leaders here, all we can do uh, here to ensure our safety, um, I just want to remind us all that ultimately our trust is in our great God, isn't it? Um, Our times are in His hands. Uh, We also believe that we need to do all we can do and be wise to uh, protect ourselves and others from preventable harm and damage. Um, I thought about this this week, and I'm sorry we have to talk about this kind of stuff in churches now, uh, but it's a a sad new reality in our culture as we move farther away from God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you'll deliver us from evil. In the mighty name of Jesus, we ask that you protect our church and our families. And Father, we ask that your hand of protection would be upon the other churches here in Edmond and Oklahoma City and in this country and around the world, Father. We ask especially you'd build a hedge of protection around our children and our young people in their schools. We thank you that you're our refuge and you're our shield and you're our strong tower. And Father, we look to you for grace and healing for those in that community down in in Sutherland Springs, Texas. Oh God, have mercy on them and embrace them in your loving, everlasting arms. Father, we look forward to that day when Jesus will come and and evil will be forever overthrown. We pray that it will come happen soon. And now, Father, we ask that you prepare our hearts and our minds now to welcome the Word of God down into our lives so that we can be changed by it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Our text this morning is Philippians 3, uh, 10 through 16. Let me read those verses for us. As we break in here in verse 10, we're kind of in the middle of a sentence, so it's kind of a little bit of an abrupt beginning here, but it says, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. If anything, you have a different attitude. God will reveal that to you also. However, let us keep living by that standard to which we have attained. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word, the preaching of it, and uh, the applying of it to our hearts and lives. There's a great story I like about a little boy that went to bed one night, and those of you that have little kids at home now or maybe grandkids around, you can relate to this. This this little boy goes to bed at night, and uh, he falls out of bed, and his mom hears him and goes in there and asks him. She said, what happened? The little boy's kind of stunned. You know, it's the middle of the night, and he says, well, I I guess I stayed too close to where I got in. I like that story because far too many Christians are like that, aren't they? That uh, They fail to make progress and they stagnate. You think about a lot of believers that we know in our lives, and it could even be some of us here this morning, that we've stayed too close to where we got in. We fail to, to go on and make progress in the Christian life. And in Philippians chapter 3 here, the Apostle Paul models for us the importance of making progress in our Christian life of moving beyond where we got in. And you remember last week we looked at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, and those verses tell us how to become a Christian, how to become a follower of Jesus Christ. But in verse 10, the focus shifts from how to become a Christian to how to grow um, as a Christian. And we grow spiritually when we put away the past and we passionately pursue Christ-likeness. That's the key. That's what this text this morning is about. You and I grow spiritually. We make progress in our spiritual lives when we put away the past and we passionately pursue Christ-likeness. Now, I see three ingredients, three main ingredients here to our spiritual growth this morning in this passage. The first of all is what I call the dissatisfaction. If you're satisfied with where you are spiritually, then you're not going to be spurred to go on, right? So it starts with what I kind of call a holy dissatisfaction with where you are. So it starts with dissatisfaction, and it goes to determination. We have to have determination and discipline to grow. And then finally, in verses 15 and 16, we'll close this morning by looking at the direction. So let's start here in verse 10, the first part of verse 12, by looking at what I call here the dissatisfaction. Now, evidently what had happened is some of the believers at Philippi have been influenced by some false teachers. You remember we, we kind of identified and described those false teachers last week, those Judaizers that were putting these uh, Gentile believers under the Mosaic law and telling them they had to be circumcised and all of that. Evidently, these false teachers believed, many of them, that they were perfect, that they had arrived spiritually, if you will. And Paul is writing here to the Philippians, and he wants them to know that perfection in this life is not possible. In fact, the apostle Paul wants them to know that even 
himself, the Apostle Paul, does not have all this stuff nailed down yet, that Paul still needs to grow and to develop in his life, that even the great Apostle Paul has not arrived spiritually. I mean, look at verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. In verse 13, he gives another disclaimer. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it. Now think about this. These are words written by the Apostle Paul, who's in his 60s, probably his mid-60s, and he'd known Christ now for over 30 years. And yet Paul says, I'm not satisfied with where I am spiritually. I haven't attained it yet. I press on that I can attain the goal for which Christ saved me. So Paul is not a, a stagnating, satisfied Christian. Paul is one who knows that he hasn't arrived. Now, Paul already knows Christ, because if you go back to verse 8, he says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So Paul knows Christ, but he wants to know him more. Look at verse 10, that I may know him. It's like you're introduced to a person and you get to know that person, but the more time you spend with them, you get to know them more intimately and more deeply. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul wants to know Christ better and more deeply and more intimately. And by the way, the word used for know here is not just intellectual knowledge, but it's a word in the Greek that means to to know experientially. And he says, I want to know the Lord Jesus Christ better and better. In other words, there's ocean depths in the person of Jesus Christ that I've not yet come to know. And one thing I found in my own spiritual life, and many of you can identify with this as well, the more we come to know Christ, the more we sense our need to grow and to know Him better. The more you learn about the Bible, the more you realize how much you don't know. And the more you come to know of the Lord Jesus, the more that you sense you need to know Him even better. So spiritual growth for you and for me begins with dissatisfaction with our present spiritual condition. That we're not satisfied and and lazy and complacent in our lives. Again, some call this like a, 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 a sanctified discontent or kind of a holy dissatisfaction. That's the first step. Now, I want you to notice in verse 10, Paul says that I I may know him, the Lord Jesus, and the power of his resurrection. Uh, The greatest display of the power of Jesus Christ was his resurrection. And all of us here that know Christ, we are children of the resurrection, if you will. Christ's resurrection power resides inside of us and enables us to live a godly life and to resist temptation and to, to meet the challenges of life that we face. And Paul is saying here, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, Paul says, that's available to me in my daily life, to to, to transform my life and to propel me forward. And Paul says, I want to know more about what it means to have this resurrection power of Jesus down on the inside. And I can say an amen to Paul with that because I want to know that too. So many believers today are just uh, just impotent and they seem powerless in their lives. They've not laid hold of or tapped into really in, in much, to much degree uh, the, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. I want to know that more and more in my life. Paul says, I want to know him and I want to know the power of his resurrection to transform my life and to propel me forward in service for him. But notice he also says, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. 
Now, there's quite a bit of difference of opinion on what this means, but my understanding here is, is that what Paul is saying is, is look, back whenever Jesus died on the cross, Jesus didn't just die for me, but Jesus died as me. When you're a believer in Jesus Christ, when Christ died on the cross, you died back there with Him. All that you used to be in Adam, all that you were in that old man or the old woman tied to the old creation, died there with Jesus Christ. And what he's saying here, I think, is, I want to know more and more the implications in my daily life of what it means that I died with Jesus Christ and that I was conformed to His death. So what Paul is saying here is, I want more and more in my life to grasp the implications of what it means that the old person was put away at the cross. The old Mark Hitchcock died and was put away there at the cross, and now Christ has been raised, and I have new life in Him and His resurrection power. And Paul's saying, I want to know more about what that means in my life every day. And all of us here are working out constantly the implications of that in our lives. What does it really mean that I died with Christ, that, that, that the old person I was has been put away, and that I now have the very resurrection power of Jesus Christ residing in me? Paul says, that's what I want to know. And then he says in verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So he moves now to the ultimate purpose of knowing Christ. And that is that someday we will be caught up to be with Him. Now, when Paul says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead, some think, well, sounds like Paul's kind of uncertain here or kind of doubtful whether he really will attain to the resurrection of the dead. I think what it's saying here is, Paul doesn't know when the Lord's going to come back. And Paul might die before Christ comes back, in which case his body will be resurrected. But if the Lord Jesus comes back when Paul's alive or when we're alive, we're not going to die and be resurrected. We're going to be caught up immediately to be with the Lord. So when he says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead, there's no doubt or uncertainty about his future, but he's not really sure if he's going to go via resurrection or via rapture. And, uh, you know, the old saying is we're looking for the upper taker, not the undertaker. And so I hope the Lord comes back uh, in our lifetime. Now, Paul says, look, I don't know if I'm going to die and then that way my body will have to be resurrected to go to heaven or if the rapture will occur in my lifetime and I'll be caught up to, the, to be with the Lord. But the word he uses here for resurrection is a word never used anywhere else in the New Testament. It's, it's literally the out-resurrection from the dead. And you think about this, it would picture like it, when the Lord comes at the rapture, you can picture a, a cemetery there full of bodies. And those who know the Lord, at that point, their bodies are going to be resurrected. There's going to be an out-resurrection where those people are taken out from among the others who are dead there, and they're going to be resurrected. Their body will be caught up and be made new, a perfected, immortal, imperishable body joined with their perfected spirit. And those who are alive on the earth are going to be caught up immediately to go and to be with the Lord. And Paul says, look, I'm going to attain to the resurrection from the dead if the Lord doesn't come back in my lifetime. Now, all this section here, what Paul's focusing on, though, is this dissatisfaction. Now, most of us can agree, in fact, we would all agree here, I'm sure this morning, that we're not perfect, that we haven't arrived spiritually. 
But I often hear people almost use that as an excuse sometimes. Sometimes when I'm counseling with people or talking with people, maybe it's a husband and wife and they're having a lot of problems, and one of them will say, well, you know, I'm not perfect, you know, and they kind of use that almost as an excuse to be complacent about their spiritual life. Look, even though Paul isn't perfect, that doesn't mean that he isn't passionate about growing in his knowledge of Christ. God doesn't expect perfection, but he does expect progress. God's plan for you and me is progress, not perfection. And we need to be making progress spiritually in our lives. The greatest thing that you can do for the Lord, the greatest thing you can do for yourself, and the greatest thing you can do for your spouse and for your family and for your friends is to be growing spiritually and maturing and becoming more like Jesus Christ. It's the greatest thing you can do is to be spiritually growing and making progress in your life. Now, how do we make this progress? Let's look at the beginning of uh, the middle of verse 12. He says, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Now, if you're with us last time, Paul used an accounting metaphor. You remember that? Talking about salvation. He's talking about gains and losses spiritually. Well, now he's moving from an accounting metaphor to an athletic metaphor. And he says, I press on. And that word press on there means literally to pursue or to hunt down. It's the same word used back in in verse 6 of this chapter where Paul says, I was a persecutor of the church. Paul was hunting down Christians to kill them. And Paul says, where I used to use all of my zeal to hunt down Christians to kill them, I'm I'm using that same uh, vigor in my life now to pursue Jesus Christ. I'm pressing on. And Paul says, there's something in life that I'm after. That's my goal in life. And he says that I want to lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of. Now, we need to explain what this means here. When he he says, I want to lay hold of what I was laid hold of for, the word laid hold of literally means to overtake or to seize or to catch. It's like uh, if you watched some football games yesterday, like someone running someone down and tackling them from behind. And I love this because Paul says, there was a time in my life when Jesus Christ laid hold of me. Remember, Paul was on the road to Damascus going there to kill Christians. And he says, it's like Jesus Christ came and overtook me, and he seized me, and he tackled me from behind. Now, one of the things that tells us is none of us here on our own are moving toward God. We're moving away from him. And what he does is he comes in our sin, and he overtakes us, and he seizes us, and he lays hold of us, and he tackles us from behind and he makes us his own. So Paul says, there was a time in my life when the Lord Jesus came and laid hold of me. And Paul says, from that point on, the dominating focus of my life is for me to lay hold of the reason that God laid hold of me. So I'm trying to seize that which for which I was seized by Christ, or to get hold of that for which Christ got hold of me. Which then begs the question, well, then why did Christ lay hold of Paul? Why does he lay hold to any of us? What is the purpose why God lays hold of us? And the answer to that is to make us like Christ. 
Like in Romans 8.29, it says that we are predestined by God to be conformed to the image of His Son. God's purpose for your life and for my life in seizing us, in laying hold of us, is to make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. And someday that process will be finished when the Lord comes. And in 1 John 3, it says, when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. So Paul says, look, the Lord came and laid hold of me, and He had a purpose in mind to make me like Christ. And so now the purpose of my life is to lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of. So Christ has seized us. He's taken possession of us. He's taken a hold of us to make us like Himself. That is the goal. That is the prize of the Christian life. And in verse 13, Paul gives this a disclaimer again, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. I'm not like Jesus yet. I haven't laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do. Paul is driven by one thing. He's single-minded. Paul says, here's my one thing. Here's what drives me. Here's what I passionately pursue in life, and that is to be like Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is pursuing in life. That's the goal. That's the prize. In other words, the bullseye, the goal, the target for you and for me in life is Jesus Christ. It's to be like Him. D.L. Moody, the great preacher uh, years ago, he once said, it's better to say this one thing I do than these 40 things I dabble with. And a lot of Christians are dabbling with a lot of things, but they don't have a single-minded focus uh, to be like Christ. Now, now for that to happen, notice what he says, forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting what lies behind. This is the negative. He says, you got to forget what's behind you. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't remember the past. I mean, if if you can't remember the past, that's not a good thing. Usually something's wrong with you if that's true. But the word forget here means to neglect or overlook or to care nothing about. So a good way to translate this is to be no longer influenced by the past. Yeah, we know what happened, but we don't let it influence us anymore. We care nothing about it. And it's in the present tense here in the Greek, which means keep on forgetting those things which are in the past. Many, many believers are crippled and paralyzed by the past in their lives. And the problem is, as I've said many times here in the church, the problem is we forget what God wants us to remember and we remember what He wants us to forget. If we could just start remembering the stuff God tells us to remember and forget the stuff He wants us to forget, uh, we'd be making a lot better progress in our spiritual lives. Look, we want to learn from the past, but we don't want to live in the past. And that's what he's saying here in this passage. Now, forgetting what's behind, I think, involves several things. One is it involves forgetting past sins. Far too many believers live under the cloud of past sins. I talk to people sometimes that are just literally shackled in their Christian life. Maybe a, a woman that, I, that I've talked to on several occasions. I've talked to women who had an abortion in their past. And it just, it just shackled them and chained them to the past and they can't go forward. I've talked to men before who've committed adultery. They've cheated on their spouse. And because of that, they're just paralyzed and crippled in their spiritual life. They're devoured with guilt, and they just live in despair over sin. For those of us who know Jesus Christ, our sins are covered under and paid for under the blood of Jesus Christ. 
We have to believe that and, and, and trust God that it's true. In, in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, that word confess means to, to, to agree with God about it. If you agree with God about your sin, what you've done, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that's either true or it's not true. And I want to believe, and I do believe that it's true, and that our, our sins have been covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. Don't stay shackled by past sins in your life. We also need to forget past sorrows. A lot of people are bogged down by their failures in the past, things they've done, that, you know, the, you know, a, a, a business venture they went in that went bad, or just different failures, jobs they were in, maybe past marriages that have failed, whatever it may be. They're nursing wounds and hurts from the past. And again, there, there may be even bitterness or resentment or a lot of grievance over, over things that maybe were done to us. It's like the, the woman that was bitten by a rabid dog and it looked like she was going to die from rabies. So the doctor told her to put her affairs in order. So the woman took a pen and, and got some paper and began to just write furiously. She, was, she began to write and write and write. And finally, the doctor says, that sure is a long will you're making. She snapped back and she said, this ain't a will. This is a list of all the people I want to bite before I die. <laughs> it's the way some people are, isn't it? It's to, a, a list of, they have a list in their mind of just grievances and resentment and people have done them wrong in life uh, that they want to get back at. And again, if we live our life like that, we're not going to go on and press on and make progress. Here's another thing we need to forget, our past successes. We need to forget our past sins, and we need to uh, certainly forget our past sorrows, but we need to forget our past successes as well. A lot of people, you know, maybe they did some great things for the Lord. You know, they taught Sunday school class for years or helped in the nursery or were involved in some great evangelism efforts in the church, and they're focused all back on the glory days of how it used to be. And when you do that, then you get relaxed and you get complacent and self-satisfied. And it's just as much a danger to, to focus on your past accomplishment and successes as it is to focus on your past sins. It just makes you kind of rest on your laurels, if you will. Again, if anybody could have rested on their laurels, it was Paul. I mean, this guy's an apostle. He's planted churches all over the world. He ends up writing 13 New Testament books. The guy sets a new standard for excellence. Yet here this man is, he's in his 60s, he's in prison, and he says, I'm still pressing on. I'm forgetting what's behind. I'm not thinking about those past accomplishments in my life. I'm pressing on the higher ground that God has for me. Look, whatever you do, don't let the past cripple your present and your future. You can't drive your car looking in a rearview mirror, or I guess if we want to update that today, you can't drive your car looking in the backup camera, right? You get this little backup camera. I mean, you can drive a little bit in that thing, but it's not going to go very well. I watched a, a program a couple weeks ago. It was a fascinating program, uh, with a sports program, a guy interviewing Nick Saban, who's obviously just an incredible success in college coaching. There's a lot of things in there that were interesting. But they were asking him about some of the secrets to coaching. He said the number one secret in his coaching success is the 24-hour rule. The guy says, well, what's the 24-hour rule? He says, well, he said, uh, if we win the game on Saturday, you get 24 hours to enjoy the success. I tell the other coaches, you can brag about it, tell everybody about it, you know, glory in it. You know, the players can talk all about how great plays they made, whatever they want to do for 24 hours. 
And he said, if we lost the game on Saturday, you can wallow in self-pity for 24 hours, talk about how bad it was, blame the coaches, whatever you want to do. But when 24 hours is up, we never look back and we get to work on all the little things that we need to do to win the next week. You can't talk about anything in the past once that 24-hour period's up. I thought, man, that's a powerful lesson for the spiritual life. So many people are shackled to the past. Back in, uh, on August 7th, 1954, during the British uh, Empire and Commonwealth Games up in Vancouver, um, England's Roger Bannister and Australia's John Landy met for the first time in the one-mile run in that newly constructed Empire Stadium all the way back in 1954. Uh, both of these men had broken uh, the four-minute barrier previously that year. Uh, Roger Bannister was uh, the first to break it, and then a month later, John Landy uh, became the new record holder, breaking Bannister's record. Um, this was the, it was the first sports program ever broadcast by CBS. It became, uh, they called it, it was promoted as the mile of the century, but it became known later as the miracle mile. And people all over the world watched, and 35,000 people crammed into the stadium to watch these two men run. And the race was close almost all the way. And then almost near the end of the race, John Landy, who's out in the lead, takes a moment of time and this fraction of a second, he looks and turns to the left to look over his shoulder because he doesn't know where Roger Bannister is. And in doing that, he just breaks stride barely just for a fraction of a second. And on his right-hand side, Roger Bannister passes him and wins uh, the race by five yards. It's, it's been called one of the most dramatic moments in sports history. And when you go to Vancouver today, that fraction of a second was fro- is frozen in time. There's a huge bronze statue there, or two of them. And it pictures uh, John Landy there looking to the left back over his shoulder, and Roger Bannister is going by him there uh, on the right. And that's exactly what Paul is telling us here. Paul is saying, look, there's a danger in the spiritual life of breaking stride and looking back. It's going to keep you from winning the race. So he says, forget what's behind. And then notice what he says, the end of verse 13, and reach toward what lies ahead. Those words reaching forward there is used of of a runner straining every muscle in a race. So, look, Christian maturity requires passion and discipline and effort. You're not going to grow spiritually uh, just by osmosis. It takes work. And he says here in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I press on. It's the same word he used back up in verse 12 he uses again. Now, I love this verse. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize at the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, back in that day when someone was in the games, if they won the prize, they would come up later to the, uh, to the, the stand there where the uh, awards were given, kind of like on this stage I'm standing on. So you received kind of what's uh, known as the upward call. You were called upward to the platform where the awards were given. And Paul says in verse 14, one of these days, the Lord Jesus is going to give the upward call. We're going to be caught up to be with him to heaven. And there's an event then called the judgment seat of Christ, where our life as a believer is going to be reviewed and evaluated by the Lord. And Paul says here, someday when we get that upward call, we're going to get the prize. And I think the prize here is to be like Jesus. 
Again, 1 John 3 says, when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So Paul says, look, there's coming a day when I'm going to get the upward call, God's going to call me to heaven, and I'm going to finally get the prize. I'm going to be like Jesus. But he's saying, in the meantime, down here on earth, I'm pressing toward the goal to become like him as much as I can. And I think of it like this, wherever we are in our progress to becoming like Jesus, in the moment when the Lord comes, he's going to make up whatever the difference is to make us like him in that moment of time when he catches us up to be with himself. So Paul says, look, I'm not loafing and I'm not coasting through life because I'm running hard after the goal. And I know that someday God's going to call me to heaven. I'm going to get the prize finally and God's going to make me like his son. The final word here about our spiritual growth is what I call the direction. This is real simple here in verse 15 and 16. Notice verse 15. He says, let as many as are perfect have this attitude. And so when I wait a minute, you've been telling us the whole time that none of us are perfect. Well, the word perfect there probably is better translated mature. Let us therefore as many as are mature. So yes, there's absolute perfection, but there's a relative maturity that we can gain in this life. And he says, those of you who are mature, you're going to have this attitude. In other words, if you're a mature Christian, you're going to adopt the attitude that Paul has here. That is, I haven't achieved it yet. I need to forget what's behind. I need to press on to the goal and pursue being like Christ. Then I love this, he says, but if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. Now, I love that because if there's anyone here this morning and you don't have the attitude of what we've been talking about here in this passage, it's saying here, God will reveal that to you. God will reveal to you where you're falling short in this, and God will call you up higher uh, to, to see these things uh, happen in your life. So if we have a different attitude, God's going to reveal it to us. God wants us to be on this path of progress and maturity. And then I love verse 16. He says, however, let us keep living by that same standard to which we've attained. So in this, this Christian life, this Christian race, if you will, we all go at a different pace. We're all at different places in our growth and maturity and understanding. God knows that. We don't all grow at the same rate. What he's saying here is, whatever point you've reached, make sure you keep to that point. Or literally, the best way to translate this in verse 16 is, let us keep in step with what we've already attained. So he's saying, look, God wants you to be growing and going forward spiritually, but at a very minimum, don't lose what you've got. In other words, hold the ground that you've maintained. It's a call to consistency. We grow. God wants us to to keep in step with what we've attained and then to grow some more from there, keep what we've attained and keep growing. That's the way uh, the spiritual life works. Now, as we close this morning, let me just ask this question. I want to make sure before we leave here that everyone here this morning is in the race. There's a lot of people out there trying to win a race they've never entered They're not in the race. Have you been laid hold of by Jesus Christ? You say, well, how does that happen? Well, we go back to chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, look, I don't have a righteousness of my own. I don't have any righteousness. The righteousness I need is the righteousness God gives to me as a gift through Jesus Christ. You come this morning and recognize, look, I'm not righteous. I know I'm a sinner. And I can't get to heaven of my own righteousness. But I'm going to trust in Jesus. I'm going to trust in God. And when I do that, God says he'll give me the righteousness that I need to be able to enter his heaven. 
So if you've never done that, trust in Christ this morning. Take Him to be your righteousness. Abandon self-effort. And put your faith where God puts your sin in the person of Jesus Christ. And for those of us who know the Lord, let me just say this. Don't be satisfied today with where you are spiritually. Don't be complacent. Don't allow the past to cripple you. Let it go. And keep pressing on to know Christ better, to be like Him. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, you read the Bible. Pray. Come and meet with God's people. Verse 17, we're going to pick up there next time, goes on and talking about finding people who are examples that you can follow. It's another way to, to do this. Find mentors or people that you can look at and say, that's a person I want to follow what their life is like as they follow the Lord. But it takes discipline and work to, to read the Bible and to pray and to be with God's people regularly and to, to meditate and reflect on the Scriptures. Look, perfection in this life is not possible, but constant progress toward Christ's likeness is possible. And that is God's will for you and for me, for all of us to be moving forward and progressing to becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus. Over in uh, the Swiss Alps, there's a, there's a little grave there, a little marker that honors a man who fell to his death at that point, trying to uh, make the ascent of a certain mountain there. And uh, the marker uh, get, uh, gives the man's name, and then this brief epitaph is below it, and it says, he died climbing And I like that because that ought to be the epitaph of every person who knows the Lord Jesus, that we died climbing on that upward path to becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus. Uh, Dr. Eric Alexander, some of you all know that name. He's been at our church a couple of times. He's a a pastor. He's up in his 80s now. He's from Glasgow, Scotland, a great man of God. And I read this story not long ago about him where he tells about meeting uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous preacher. Um, Eric Alexander, back in those days, was a young seminary student, and Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher in England, came uh, to speak there in Glasgow, Scotland. And he spoke in this great hall there. There was 2,000 people there. It was packed. And um, after the meeting was over, Eric Alexander was out there waiting for the car that was going to take him back to, to, uh, to the seminary where he was a student. And he saw Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones greeting all these different people out in the lobby. Being a young preacher, he thought, well, I'd like to kind of pick up some pointers of what Dr. Jones says to people just when he talks to them casually. So he goes over and kind of, not conspicuously, but just kind of stands over to listen to his conversations. And he noticed that every person he talked to, no matter how old they were, no matter what their situation, no matter what they discussed with him, the very last words as they walked away, Martin Lloyd-Jones would shake their hand and say, keep on, keep on. And as it ended up in God's providence, Eric Alexander got a ride home in the same car as Dr. Jones. And they were talking on the way back, and he said, I asked him at one point, Doctor, forgive me, but I couldn't help hearing your last words to every person you spoke with. They were, keep on. It sounded as if that was particularly important to you. He said, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones got very animated at this point. He said, my dear man, there's nothing more important. We must keep on. The Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And then Dr. Alexander is in his 80s now. He said, you know, my strength is diminishing and I'm tireder and I'm a lot weaker. And he says, you know, sometimes it's easy for me to kind of become complacent in my spiritual life. But he said, I always remember those words, Dr. Jones said, keep on. And there may be some of you here today, you're getting older and up in years, getting weaker on the outside, it may take a lot more effort. And you may just kind of become complacent and just kind of give up and say, I'm finished growing at this point. 
And the message to you this morning is to keep on. There may be some of you here that are young people. And you think, look, I I got plenty of time in life. I got years and decades to come to walk with the Lord and and get involved in all that stuff. You know, I'm just going to kind of live for myself now. Well, the message of the Lord as you're a young person would be to keep on. Maybe your past is littered with failures and frustrations, and it has you shackled, and, and you're just so discouraged this morning and maybe depressed about your life. The message to you is to keep on. The, the word for all of us this morning, wherever we are in our spiritual walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, is to keep on. In fact, that'd be a good thing for us to say to one another every once in a while when we see each other, when we depart. We tell one another, keep on. To give one another that encouragement, to keep pressing on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Well, let's pray together. Father, we come before you now this morning and For those of us who know the Lord Jesus, Father, we we thank you for laying hold of us. We thank you for for seizing our lives for Christ's sake. We're running away from you. You came and you overtook us. You made us your own. Father, we thank you for that. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning who may be having a terrible time letting go of the past in their life. I pray that the Holy Spirit would apply this message to them this morning and they'd be set free. They'd be set free from these shackles that are holding them to the past. And Father, maybe even some of us here that have had past successes and we're glorying in those things and it's made us lazy and complacent, that we'd let it go and we'd move on. Father, I pray that each one of us here this morning would take dead aim with our life at the bullseye of the Lord Jesus Christ becoming more and more like Him, that our life would all be all about a passionate pursuit of Jesus. Well, Father, for each of us, I pray that you'd help us to keep on until Jesus comes. We ask these things in His dear name. Amen. Well, if you'll stand with me for the benediction as we're dismissed. Uh, just a couple of announcements. Again, if you